Good morning. I've been looking forward to today. Not going to lie. I'm a little nervous, but I'm looking forward to today. Because today we're taking a step into some deep water. But to learn how to swim, sometimes you've got to jump in the pool. To be a follower of Jesus, it's what we've been talking about for over a month now. Different elements of it, because it's more than just one thing. Being a Jesus follower is a worshiper. Worship is part of every day of your life. Being a Jesus follower is being part of the community of God, being part of his family, being a Jesus follower, is a student. You observe the word, you learn it, and you live it out. Being a Jesus follower is being someone who has an outward focus, who loves other people, and pours into other people, and is not consumed by them. Being a Jesus follower is all of those different things. And those are all general senses of what being a Jesus follower is. But there's also specifics to what being a Jesus follower looks like. And today, we're going to launch into the next sermon series for our church for the next couple months. And we are examining the blueprint. The blueprint that Jesus gave us for living and building his kingdom. And you might be surprised by what it is, but he was laying it out through the Gospels, through his teaching... It's a blueprint that stretches back to the beginning, and it's a blueprint that you and I, you might not even know it, might be living by right now. So why talk about this? Why does Darren keep making us stare at what does it mean to be a Jesus follower? Because it's so easy to be a part of a church family for years and years and years, but not ask yourself the question, am I doing this right? Or we get so comfortable in our faith, comfortable being a part of our family, that we forget about the project that we're all a part of. It just naturally, I think, over time turns and becomes inward focused. We come to church to enjoy things for us. We're a part of the family and we enjoy things for us. And we forget that we've been called to build a kingdom. That we have a task given by our Father in heaven to be a part of. And he's doing it through us and with us. And you and I have made a pledge to see this through. You see, being a member of our church, being a follower of Jesus in the Bridgeway family, if you had someone new coming to Bridgeway, and they asked, what is being a part of this family all about? What do you guys do in this family? Do you come? Do you sing? What do you do? I'd point them to what does it mean to be part of this family? We wrote it down. And as each one of us become members of our family, we pledge ourselves to live out the blueprint for building the kingdom of God. We even keep this in the pews right in front of you. So if you ever want to see what it is that we as a family are striving to live out, these are the things. So for the last month, we were trying to do foundational work. What does it mean at a base level to be a Jesus follower? And to me, that so well sums up the top paragraph. To be a part of this family means you trust in Jesus, you're baptized, born again, and committed to the Bible. Foundational stuff. The house is built on that foundation. That's why we did such a general sense of what it means to be a Jesus follower. 
because all the more specific stuff we talk about will always land on that foundation. This is the blueprint for our family. And there's more than just this. This is just a summary of the things that we live out. But for the next two months, we are going to examine the center of our membership covenant. These, I believe, are the practices that Jesus has called us to, along with other practices. Because our blueprint is Jesus and his practices. So if you were to ask me, what does it mean to live in the Bridgeway family and live for Jesus? I would say, look at how Jesus lived. Look at what Jesus taught. That's my blueprint for life. So as you look at these, I am committed to being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, by intentionally, oh, look at that. We made this a decade ago, and they even put in the word of the year. Intentionally, all these different practices. What are they all leading to? Friends, if you didn't know the Greek and Hebrew word for maturity by the end of this sermon, it is going to be so imprinted in your mind. We're aiming for maturity. This week, I learned a lot about what maturity means. This is the end goal. I want to pull this story together, the whole thing that I'm going to tell, to come back to this point. That Jesus and the blueprint that he lived out for all of us to watch were for us to replicate, to hit an end goal. There's a target that we're aiming for. It's not to come to church and sing songs for the rest of our lives and one day we meet him. There's progress that we're making through our relationship with God and through these practices of loving God and loving others. In the way that Jesus did, we're slowly moving closer to completion. This word, maturity, is all across the New Testament. Paul, as Paul the missionary, the apostle is planting all these churches. He keeps telling them, we're aiming for maturity. We're aiming for maturity. And that doesn't mean old people in church who know how to sit still and keep their hands together during the sermon. Reach over and slap those kids who are moving, right? Sit still, be mature in church. That's what Jesus wants. Paul mentioned it in the Bible. It's in 1 Corinthians, I think. Like, that's not what we're aiming for. It's blamelessness. So I want to show you the blueprint that I see in the scripture and how we are going to study it together. Jesus' blueprint for the kingdom is found the Sermon on the Mountain. And if you don't know about the Sermon on the Mountain, this is recorded in Matthew, in his gospel, in chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And it's Jesus' most comprehensive set of teachings. If you have a Bible where Jesus' words are read, that is going to be incredibly read. Jesus is going on and on and on about this blueprint for living life in God's kingdom. But what's startling for myself as I'm reading through this is that I can't live up to this. See, what he does is he takes the code that they lived by, their Old Testament blueprint, and he reveals the heart of wisdom that was supposed to shine through it. So when he gets to sections like, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, 
Whoever murders is liable to judgment. And all the believers of the Old Testament would say, Amen. And Jesus said, I tell you this. The heart of do not murder is to stop hating one another. It's a transformation of your heart and you need to start hating. Because if you continue to hate, then the transformation hasn't taken place. You're a murderer at this point. So you have to stop hating people or you are guilty of murder. That flipped their whole world upside down because their blueprint at that time was if I can control my external actions, then I was right before God. But what Jesus reveals is that it wasn't the external actions the whole time that God was trying to grasp. It was the condition of the human heart. He's trying to transform us into blameless people, complete people. So that change to your outward action was supposed to lead to an inward transformation that would make you more like God so that you could know him and live for him. He goes on, he talks about adultery. He says, in the Old Testament it said, don't cheat on your spouse, don't commit adultery. But I tell you this, if you even look lustfully at someone else, then your heart is just as guilty of adultery as if you did it with your hands. You were supposed to be transformed. But you have focused so much on the external action that no transformation has taken place and it needs to. He takes the law of Moses that they've carried for 1,500 years and he says the blueprint for my kingdom is a transformed people who become holy and blameless and complete. This is my blueprint for the kingdom. The tricky part is, it's unattainable. You ever tried not hating someone? You ever tried not lusting? You ever tried not sinning? How did that go for you? How long did you last? Did you last a day without sinning? Did you last an afternoon without sinning? So if that's the standard, how do we live up to that? Jesus goes as far to say in the Sermon on the Mountain that if your hand causes you to sin or if your eye causes you to sin, what should you do with it? What should you do with it? Right. You should cut off that hand or gouge out that eye. So for him to say to his followers, whatever is causing you to sin, cut it off and destroy it. How seriously is he taking the issue of sin in our lives? It's life or death. But you and I can't live out the Sermon on the Mountain because we struggle with sin and we will our whole lives as God slowly transforms us, hopefully less. So if this is something worth dying over and we're unable to keep it, then we're done for. So do we just scrap it? What do you do? Jesus is revealing in this blueprint who he is and what his father's kingdom looks like. And his father's kingdom is blameless and perfect and so is he. And this blueprint is supposed to lead you to that perfection. Look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 48. This is right after Jesus goes through all of these Old Testament commands 
and turns them back toward transformation. So he talks about murder, he talks about lust, he talks about divorce, he talks about taking oaths, retaliation, loving your enemy. And after he's gone through all these different things, and he's turned them all away from the external action and to the the state of your heart, this is what he says. He says, therefore, in conclusion to all these things, you must be perfect like the Father is perfect. Now, I don't know about you or me. I'm far from perfect. So what is he trying to say to you and me as we read the scripture? Teleos. I don't speak a word of Greek, not even a lick of it. And the whole New Testament's written in it. You know how annoying that is? I don't speak a word of it. As I'm reading in my commentaries, though, the commentators say, look at that word, perfect. That's it printed in Greek, and there it is in English, so I can read it. Teleos. And that word is perfect, but it's also these other factors all tied together. Like we talked about maturity, completion, and my favorite this week, blamelessness. Be blameless like your heavenly father who is blameless. You want to know the purpose of the Sermon on the Mountain? To point us back to the blameless one and for us to start living like the blameless one. Right? So that we can become like him and be with him. I'm just getting started. We're going to go for an hour. Are you ready? Buckle your seatbelt. Here we go. In the Hebrew, this gets even more wild. You ready to go back to the original blueprint? You don't even know what we're going to preach about for the next two months. Hey, I'm just teasing it. You ready? The original blueprint for God's people is found in Leviticus. And for the next two months, we're going to preach through Leviticus. Leviticus, if you're new to church, is the most boring book in the Bible. (laughs) It is. If you've ever done a read the Bible through in a year plan, you failed in Leviticus. I know you did. I did. I'm the pastor. So if I got bored and quit, you definitely got bored and quit. Otherwise, you should be up here. It's hard to read. Maybe you've read it. It is hard. It's an Old Testament blueprint and code for God's people. But something should strike you as you read through the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mountain. What should strike you? That Jesus takes that blueprint and he doesn't abolish it. Some pastors nowadays might talk like that, like the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, right? The Old Law. There's no need to study that, no need to know it. Jesus changed everything. Friends, he fulfilled everything. And then he revealed to his apprentices as the journeymen, he revealed to them how that blueprint is his blueprint. How that original way of living was supposed to lead to transformation and Jesus clarifies that and then lives a transformed life. So as you and I go through Genesis and Exodus and then Leviticus together, what we are going to try to pull out of those stories is the incredible wisdom and teaching from God that is still still incredibly beneficial to this day. Why? Because it reveals who he is and it reveals how to live the blameless life with him. Leviticus. After 
400 years. 400 years of living in slavery. Did they know God? They were in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh for generations. Did they know him? And as God pulls them out, leads them to Mount Sinai, he reintroduces himself to his people. I am the Lord, he's going to say to them. Be holy like me. And as he reintroduces himself to all the people, he gives them his code. He gives them his Torah, his teaching and instruction. He gives the people who he is and how they are to live with him. He reintroduces himself. This is me and this is how we live together. Why? Because he's trying to point them back to being blameless. So it shouldn't surprise you that after 400, hear me again, 400 years of silence, where the Bible records no words from God between the Old and New Testaments, Jesus is born in a world where they haven't heard God's voice in hundreds of years. And Jesus reintroduces himself with a sermon where he teaches on Leviticus. This is who I am, and this is how we live in my kingdom. Friends, the things that are hidden, the treasures hidden within God's blueprint are absolutely amazing. You are gonna see things as we go through that you would have never thought. Details in the smallest words that are incredibly life-giving. Just like this word today, perfect. Teleos. In Hebrew, the word is tamim. So if you ever want to, uh, well, Cooper loves to do this. If they ever ask, do you speak another language? Really, you only need to know a few words of a different language to claim you speak another language, right? So as long as you can say tamim, you can tell people that you speak biblical Hebrew. So tamim means blameless, and blameless is scattered across Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Okay, let's read a little bit of Leviticus 19. And I want to show you the heart of this blueprint as we get ready to read it for the next few months. The heart of this blueprint is God is reintroducing himself to his people. Oh, I just love this. Let's read through some of it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, the Lord your God, am holy. He goes on to say, and I'm just going to summarize, paraphrase the next 20 verses. But he goes on to say in verse 3, Every one of you should love your mother and your father. And you should keep the Sabbath. Verse 4, you should turn away from idols and not worship other gods. Verses 5 through 8, you should be obedient as you make your sacrifices and worship me, for I am the Lord. Verses 9 and 10, you should be generous to those in need. Verse 11, you shouldn't steal and you shouldn't lie. Verse 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely. Verse 13 and 14, you shouldn't oppress your neighbor, you shouldn't oppress those whose struggle you should not. Verse 15, do injustice in the court. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't go around slandering other people. Verse 16, 
If you want, if you have your Bible open to this, look at 17 and 18. It's so interesting. This is just a taste of the blueprint. Look at this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Pay attention to this. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Did you catch it? The heartbeat of Leviticus. What's the heartbeat of Leviticus? It's loving God and it's loving your neighbor. The heartbeat of Leviticus goes back to the 10 words God spoke to Moses. They called the 10 commandments. That's the heartbeat of it. And the heartbeat of the 10 commandments, right? They asked Jesus, what is the greatest law? If you had to pick out of all 613 in Leviticus, what's the most important law? And Jesus said, well, The most important law is the heartbeat of the law. It's love the Lord with all your soul and strength and heart, and it's love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. What could be greater than the heartbeat of Leviticus? Everything in it is summed up in this. Love him and love other people. Like, do you get how this just keeps circling around? The whole point of 613 very odd and bizarre laws were to create people who loved him and loved one another. It was to transform us into being tamim. This is tamim in Hebrew. I love the way they write Hebrew. It's the coolest thing. It's got a whole bunch of super interesting shapes. And every dot and every little scratch means something. And you've got to know exactly what they mean. That's why it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But people know how to read this. And tamim is that same word as perfect. Teleos from the Greek. It's blameless, complete, and perfect. When God picked Noah and said, I will save Noah in the ark and no one else. God said, for he is blameless. In the Hebrew, the Lord called him tamim. He called him perfect, complete. Genesis 17, he meets with Abraham. God says, if you will walk in my way, Abraham, you must be tamim. You must be blameless. That was before his name was changed. It was Abram. You must be complete. You must be perfect. So it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus reveals God's blueprint for us to live as followers of him, he says what? The blueprint is all about being perfect. Like your heavenly father is perfect. Leviticus sums it up this way. You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holy is a different Hebrew word than tamim. But one commentator I read said, holiness might be best expressed through being tamim. The point of holiness is to be set apart in proximity with God and away from the things that are not God. Holiness was all about how close you are to him and how far away you are from the things that are not him. It's all about proximity. 
And the closer you move to God and further away you move from the things that are not God, the more tamim you become. Blameless. Like at Passover, when they had to bring the lambs and the lambs died. And their life, you'll learn this in Leviticus, the blood symbolizes the heartbeat of the animal. It's their life. So they would take a bowl of the life of the animal and the animal's life was spread across the doorposts of their homes. And that animal, God said in the Hebrew, that animal must be tamim. The animal must be blameless. Just like Adam was before the fall, tamim. Just like Jesus was, tamim. Just like you and I are being transformed into, tamim. Next week, we are going to read through a portion of Genesis so that you and I know the context for Leviticus because it can be confusing. Genesis is all about us first in our blameless state, then our brokenness, and then God's plan to restore us. Genesis is all about that. And that's how you should be reading these stories. That's how you should read the flood. That's how you should read the Tower of Babel. It was people who weren't broken who chose brokenness and then became separated from God for he is unbrokenness. He is tamim in its perfect form and we are separated from him. But from the moment of our separation, he has a plan to restore us back to being tamim again. So he takes the only tamim person on the earth, Noah, and he starts life again with him. But even out of Noah's family, brokenness. For we are not able to make ourselves blameless. Do you understand? God's plan with Noah didn't fail. Noah and his family were powerless to transform their own hearts and all be tamim. It's all pointing that we were going to need supernatural intervention to become blameless. And eventually God makes this promise to Abraham and his family that through their family, salvation would come. The one would come to crush Satan and make us complete again. So by the end of Genesis, this chosen family, Abraham's family, have actually been driven out of the promised land, which was supposed to be their kingdom with God where he would live with them. Next comes Exodus. And the week after that, Pastor David is going to preach on Exodus. What's Exodus all about? How a tamim sacrifice can be given to free us from death. A spotless, blameless sacrifice. And after we're freed from death, God pursues us with life. God comes to live with his people. So by the end of Exodus, what you see is a people chosen by God, and God has said, I'm going to live with you again. Just like in the garden with Adam, I want to be in your midst. And I'm going to transform you to be like me. And in Exodus, of course, I told you, they get to Mount Sinai, and God reveals himself for the first time in hundreds of years, and he says, this is who I am. I am the Lord. Be like me. I'm moving into your neighborhood. And what does God speak to Moses on that mountain as he reveals himself. He speaks Leviticus. Moses, this is who I am, and this is how you can be like me. Leviticus is God revealing himself to his people 
and teaching, teaching them how to apprentice under the journeyman, how to walk with him, how to be with God and how to live like God. That's Leviticus. And for 1,500 years, friends, this was their wisdom. This was their Torah. You'll hear people who speak about the Old Testament call it Torah. It was their wisdom and instruction. So when they needed wisdom, they went back to Leviticus. When they had a question on what God would want his people to do, they'd go back to Leviticus. And it's got some of the weirdest things you've ever read in it. How to properly cut up the animal for a sacrifice. I'm going to show you how that all points back to who God is. It's so beautiful. Or laws about you can't even sew different kinds of fabric to each other. Your fabric had to be one, not two different kinds. When you cooked your food, you couldn't cook different kinds together. It had to be one. You go, why? Why does that matter? Because God says, I am one. He's revealing himself to his people. You will be like me. There's nothing dangerous in sewing different fabrics together. He was trying to reveal himself to them. That's why they meditated on this. For over a thousand years, they meditated on Leviticus. They read through it slowly, and they were gleaning wisdom about their Lord as they read it. Why be pure in his presence? Why have a priesthood? Because we can't approach him because he is Tamim, it reveals him. I love it so much. Here's where we get stuck, and here's where I'm gonna wrap up. I could be the greatest Hebrew scholar in history and teach you the most interesting parts of Leviticus, or I could be the greatest New Testament scholar and we could go through the Sermon on the Mountain and I could try to reveal all these incredible nuggets of wisdom hidden within that sermon. How to worship God and how to love other people, I could try. I cannot make you to meme. I can't make me to meme. I can't make myself blameless. Like I said, I try to live by the Sermon on the Mountain. I've tried not to lust. I have tried really hard. I swear I've tried. You're not supposed to swear in church, but I try. I try not to sin, but I do. So what am I supposed to do? What do I tell my kids? What are we supposed to do? This is hopeless, but it's not, friends. What does Hebrews chapter 12 tell us about perfection? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Oh, let's read 1 and 2. Yeah, I put 1 and 2 on the screen. Let's read 1 and 2 together. This is later, after Jesus has died, been resurrected, and then he's gone up to heaven, and now his followers have started all these different churches. And one of the teachers wrote this down. He said, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud, this is of other Christians who have lived lives of faith, a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That sounds good. Let's run this race together. Verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and the, what is the word? Perfecter of our faith. 
the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen and amen. Take a guess what Greek word that is. The perfecter of our faith. The Greek word is an extension of teleos. The one who makes perfect. Look to Jesus, the founder and the one who makes blameless our faith. Friends, the pressure comes off of us as we pursue our king, our journeyman as apprentices. The pressure comes off of us because you and I cannot create the transformation that we so desperately, so desperately hunger for. He is the blameless maker. He is the heart transformer. He is the one that we pray and we invite him into our lives and he changes us. Yes, we practice his practices, but friends, the practices alone don't change us. He does. He is the perfect maker, the perfecter. He is the one who makes tamim. He will make us blameless and spotless I can't wait to see where our church family is in five years from now and in 10 years from now. What kind of disciples and journeymen we have become as apprentices right now, how far we'll go. I can't wait to see how much transformation takes place in my heart as I grow in Jesus and how much takes place in your heart as you grow in Jesus. But I can tell you this, if we try to do this on our own, if we think, friends, if we think that we can take a list of practices and if we just try our very best, we're going to become perfect people, it's not going to work. This is just a way of drawing close to the one who makes us perfect and he does the work. Can I pray for you? I just want to pray over our family as we pursue this kingdom building blueprint and I'm gonna, we're going to sing one final song before we go. So bow your head, and I just want to pray for us as a complete family. Father in heaven, holy one, seated on the throne, hidden in unapproachable light, perfect one, blameless one, Thank you for letting us even come to you and pray. Thank you that the Bible says Jesus hears our prayers and brings them to you, Father, that he's made a way for us to come into the throne room and even be able to speak to you. Forgive me, Father, and forgive us as a family for we are not blameless. We are broken and sinful people. Father, I humbly request that you would continue to be the perfect maker of your people and you would be the transformer of our family. Not me and not our leaders. You would be the perfect maker of us. You would be the blameless maker of us because I can't do that for our family. Father, would you impress these different practices on our hearts? 
Would you teach us how to live day by day by your code and by your blueprint? That we would live in your kingdom and for your kingdom. And Holy Spirit, would you do the internal changing work that we're so desperate for, making us a little bit more like Jesus every single day. Father, we offer you the little that we have. We offer you the brokenness that we have. We offer you our hearts, which are tainted, which need fixing and healing. We offer them to you. And we say, Father, please do this work inside of us that we are incapable of doing. But we pledge to live for you and live with you the best that we can. Our family is dedicated to you, for you have given all things for us. Make us blameless like you are blameless and holy like you are holy and perfect like you are perfect. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.